0: do turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew. We find ourselves in chapter 26 today. Matthew 26. We're going to be reading verses... 1 through 16 together. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God? This is the Word of God. Let's give it our attention. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Whether you are a lover of books or a lover of cinema, you are probably at least somewhat familiar with the narrative device known as the flashback. Uh, Whether it's Orson Welles' infamous Rosebud at the beginning of Citizen Kane or the well-told love story in Disney's Up, Uh, the flashback is used to recount a scene that is set at a time that is previous to the main storyline of the film or the book. More often than not, that flashback comes as a sort of sudden, vivid memory of a past event, an event that is is somehow important for you in understanding what is happening in the present. As we consider our text this morning, we have a biblical example of that sort of narrative device. You see, this is a flashback. In the timeline of Matthew's Gospel, we're already in the final week of Jesus' earthly life. According to chapter 26 and verse 2, we're we're just two days prior to that final Passover when the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But here, in verse 6, Matthew suddenly introduces this flashback to the previous Sabbath. He flashes back to that previous Saturday, to when Jesus had just come to Bethany, where he had come east of Jerusalem, near to the Mount of Olives, where he was being hosted for a dinner party at the home of Simon the leper, and together with Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. We know this by putting the other Gospels together. John's Gospel and Luke's Gospel tell us that this was this event happened six days before the Passover and prior to his triumphal entry. And yet, rather than placing this event chronologically in the unfolding of his gospel, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inserts it here in chapter 26. And he sandwiches this flashback account Uh, between the scheming of Israel's religious leaders on the one hand and the scheming of Judas with those religious leaders on the other. And then right in between these two poignant accounts of loathing and wickedness, he conveys this poignant account of worship and love. And so you see, We are meant to read these stories in contrast. As Matthew is flashing back to this dinner scene where Mary did this beautiful and costly thing as she poured out this expensive ointment over the head of Christ, and Jesus tells us that she was doing this to anoint him for his upcoming burial. I think it's a bit like a jeweler might set a diamond against the black velvet background to make it appear all the more brilliant and beautiful. Matthew sets this scene against the blackness and the darkness of this wickedness so that it might appear more beautiful and wonderful to us. And so as we look at this passage together, we're going to look at it under just these two points. First, this beautiful act of worship. This beautiful act of worship as Mary pours out her ointment over the head of Jesus, anointing him for burial, and then secondly, this wicked act of betrayal as Judas schemes to deliver up Jesus to the rulers of Israel. As we begin to look at this beautiful act of worship, I just want you to feel the immediate change of scenery. As we flash back in time here, we move from this regal palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the humble home of Simon the leper. Matthew calls this place that Caiaphas is in, a palace, and it really was. Archaeologists believe they've identified the historical site of this palace. It's known as the palatial mansion. It's on the eastern slope of the upper city of Jerusalem. It has a picturesque setting. It has easy access to the royal bridge and to the temple mount. uh, An easy place of service for the priests. And this palatial mansion boasts 6,500 square foot just for the footprint of the building. Depending on how many stories it was, it might have been actually much larger than that. But however grandiose it may have been, I think we are meant to see the contrast between that majestic palace of Caiaphas... Where the rulers of Israel are gathering against Jesus, and the humble home of Simon the leper, where Jesus and his band of disciples are gathering together to celebrate a meal. And I think that contrast is also highlighted not just by the reference to Caiaphas, but also to the reference to Simon the leper. If you know anything about the Mosaic regulations regarding leprosy, you know that to be afflicted with leprosy marked you as one who was ceremonially unclean, as quite literally an outcast of Israel, such that you had to live outside of the city, and that when you came into contact with others, you had to announce your uncleanness. You had to cover your upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Uh, That being the case it is probably not the case that Simon continues to be a leper. Uh, it's likely that he was one of those lepers whom Jesus had healed in his public ministry and now had the privilege of inviting the Savior into his home. Just think of that. He, he had to live out the, outside the city, and now he has a home among the people of Israel such that he can invite his Savior to come. Uh, in any case, this man who was once a social and religious outcast has this great honor. And among the guests who are also there are Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. How extraordinary is it that this meal involves a man who just a couple weeks ago had died, but now has been raised to life and is dining With the Savior. Uh, Not only is the the place a contrast, but the company is a contrast. And as Jesus is sitting here enjoying his friends and enjoying this meal, reclining at the table, uh, John tells us Lazarus was reclining with him. Mary, she comes with this alabaster flask filled with what Matthew just calls a very expensive ointment. John tells us that it was a pure pound of nard, a fragrant ointment likely imported from the East, uh, but definitely used by the Jewish people in their burial rites. John also tells us the value of this ointment, that it was worth some 300 denarii, or at least that's what Judas felt like they could get on the open market. 300 denarii. Now, you might remember from a previous account in this gospel what a denarii was worth. A denarii was a small silver coin uh, that was a day's wages for the common man. Uh, It was what the Roman soldiers received as their daily pay for serving in the Roman army. And so think about that. 300 denarii is not a small sum of money. 300 denarii is equivalent to 10 months of pay for the average person in Israel at this time. And yet Mary with a seeming disregard pours out this ointment in a moment. John tells us that he not only broke she not only broke the jar and poured it over the head of Jesus but that she also poured it over his feet and and anointed his feet with her hair so that the fragrance of this perfume was filling the whole house. Now, I, I said that she has a seeming disregard for the value of the ointment because that's how it appears to the disciples. But I don't think she actually has a disregard for the value of the ointment at all. In fact, I think the whole point of the story is to tell us just the opposite. She does regard the value of the ointment. In fact, John tells us that she had been intentionally keeping it for this moment. She has regard for the value of the ointment, but she has regard for the value of her Savior that much more. Who could be more worthy of having this burial anointment Than her Lord. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, For now, I want to go on and look at how this appears to the disciples. You see it in verse 8 that when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. When you put the gospel accounts together again, uh, you find out that it's Judas who is really leading this charge whether he has poisoned the thinking of the other disciples or whether Matthew is just using the disciples as a way of speaking generally, it's Judas who makes this comment about the wastefulness of the ointment. And it's an interesting word that's used here for a waste. It it literally means to be ruined or to be destroyed. Uh, In the minds of the disciples, they have ruined... This oil. They think it could have been put to a better use. But now it's been destroyed. And they don't hedge on what they think that greater use would have been. Right? They think this this money could have been sold. And it could have been used to help the poor. Well, it seems like a very noble suggestion, doesn't it? Once again... Jesus tells us that it was Judas who made this protest on behalf of the disciples. And as John conveys it in his account, he says that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor. Rather, he said it because he was a thief. And because he had charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas has in mind Not a concern for the poor. He has a concern for himself. And yet, while Jesus knows the heart of Judas, it appears the other disciples do not. At least in Matthew's account, they seem to have been taken along by Judas' suggestion, fooled by his outward expression of concern for the poor. Judas is an interesting character. We all know Judas. We all know him as the vile criminal that he is, who turns over Jesus, but none of the other disciples suspect him. That's how good he was at hiding his true colors. That's how good he was at making these kinds of noble suggestions. But what does Jesus do about this? You notice that Jesus immediately does two things. First, he just steps right in and he refutes this attitude of the disciples. He says, why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Unfortunately, this is one of those verses that often gets ripped out of context and twisted. And it's often used to mean something like this. Jesus is saying, well, there's always going to be poor people. Poverty is always going to exist in every community and society. And since you can't ever really alleviate it, you shouldn't really worry about it. But if you've ever spent any time in God's word, you know that's nonsense. You know how God cares for the poor, how he cares for those who are in need. You know about the sermon he just preached to his disciples where he he told them, if you've done it to the least of these my brothers, you've done it as unto me. Uh, To take this and twist it and turn it and make it seem to appear that Jesus is not concerned for the poor, is not concerned for the love of neighbor, is nonsense. Love for God and love for neighbor are never at odds with one another. They're the first and second great commandment. They're the whole sum of the law, right? Right? And so Jesus is not pitting these things against each other. Jesus is just making a very simple point about this unique moment. In less than one week, he will be dead. What do you do when someone that you love is dying? You go to them. You call them. You visit them. You drop everything else. All the other seeming worldly priorities suddenly become very low as you want to get as much time with your remaining loved one. And yet the disciples are just going on as though nothing is about to happen. As though Jesus' public ministry is just going to carry on As if he's just been faking it when he's told them repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem and I am going to be handed over and I am going to die. They've even rebuked him along the way. This will never happen to you. And here they are still living in this delusion. They don't get it. It's like they have their heads in the sand. In fact, he's just predicted it again in verse 2. I'm going up, and now the Son of Man will be delivered over to be crucified. But they're thinking, well, if we just got X amount of dollars for the ointment, think of what we could do with that in the coming months as we helped the poor. Boy, wouldn't that be a really good thing for your ministry, Jesus? They don't have months, they don't have weeks. It's like Jesus is trying to wake them up. He's like, you don't get it. And not only do you not get it, you're troubling the only one who does. The only one who has heard my words and believes that I am going to die and has saved up the ointment for this moment. This is a beautiful thing. It's a fitting thing. It's really interesting that John highlights Mary anointing Jesus' feet, but Matthew highlights that he anointed her head. Many commentators have pointed out that this that there's a similarity here with the way that the kings of Israel were anointed. You put that together with what we lost, saw last week in terms of Uh, the way Matthew employs Psalm 2 with the religious leaders gathering together against the Lord and against his anointed, right? And here it's Mary who is anointing him for his death. So far from being wasted, there was nothing more beautiful, nothing more fitting that might have been done with this precious ointment. And in spite of the protest of Judas and the other disciples, it's It's actually only Mary who values the ointment rightly. That's the irony. She's the only one who actually values it rightly because she's the only one who in this moment is actually valuing her Savior rightly. To call her love for Jesus a waste, Jesus will not have it. It's not wasted. Our love for Christ is never wasted. And Jesus also says it's never forgotten. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, this will be told in memory of her. As it is now, 2,000 years later from this pulpit, we're still talking about this beautiful gift of this woman. Now consider how that beautiful act of worship shines the more brilliantly against the backdrop of this wicked act of betrayal that we find in verses 14 through 16. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to be coming back to a consideration of this betrayal in weeks to come. But I I do want you today to, to see and to feel the contrast. And I think that the best way for you to feel that contrast is to see it in light of the different ways that Mary values Jesus on the one hand, and the way that Judas values Jesus on the other hand. Verses 14 through 16 tell us, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Remember we talked about those words, deliver over, right? That Jesus had just said that last week, and that's sort of Matthew's shorthand, For Jesus' suffering, he uses that language 14 times in these two chapters alone. Because to be delivered over is not a good thing, right? It's the worst possible thing, especially to be delivered over uh, to the wrath of God. But that's what Judas is offering. He wants to know what sort of value he might extract from this exchange. What will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? What is Jesus worth to you? That's what he's asking. That's what he wants to know from the chief priests. But of course, it not only tells us what Jesus is worth to the chief priests, it also tells us what Jesus is worth to Judas, doesn't it? And verse 15 tells us. It says, And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So now we know. What is Jesus worth? 30 pieces of silver. And most scholars believe that those 30 pieces of silver would have been 30 denarii. One-tenth of the price that Judas thought he could get for the ointment. Judas, who balked with the other disciples that Mary should pour out 300 denarii worth of ointment, is willing to take 30 denarii for the life of Jesus. But I want you to notice that Matthew doesn't actually use the language of denarii here. Instead, he specifically says they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which might make us wonder why not use the actual name of the coinage as he does elsewhere. Why refer to this, the price of this as 30 pieces of silver? Well, I think it's because, as he often does, and as he will do in chapter 27 explicitly, Matthew wants us to connect the price of this betrayal with a couple of Old Testament references. Right. First is Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 11, where we read that they weighed out my wages as 30 pieces of silver, And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. We're going to find out in Matthew 27 that this blood money, these 30 pieces of silver are used to buy the potter's field. But I think there's another Old Testament reference that stands behind even the Zechariah reference. I think it's the reason that Zechariah sarcastically refers to this as the lordly price at which I was priced by them. And that is because this lordly price is not a lordly price at all. Exodus 21 tells us that 30 pieces of silver was the redemption value of a slave. As these wicked men gathered together to determine what Jesus' worth, the value that they put on his head is of a common slave. And that's exactly how they're going to treat him. They're not going to give him an honorable death. The kind of death that a, a citizen or a freeman would get. They're going to give him the shameful sort of death that was reserved specifically for criminals and slaves. He's going to be delivered up to be crucified. He's going to be delivered up to be tortured. And as you just think about that contrast, I think it raises some really important questions for us about our system of values. Uh, And not just about the way we value Christ, although I trust that that is self-evident in this passage. The way that Judas values Christ, the way that Mary values Christ, And again, it's not that Judas has regard for the value of the ointment and Mary doesn't. It's that Mary's regard for the value of Jesus and for his impending death on her account is so much greater in value. This is the Jesus that she had just watched raise her brother from the dead. This is the Jesus who made the promise, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus said. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you value the promise of Christ? Do you trust that through his death and resurrection, you will have life? that he was delivered up for your trespasses, that he was raised for your justification, what is the value of that to you? Would you dare to say it was a waste? Because I think when you think about it, the same critique that the disciples made about the ointment that Mary poured out over the head of Jesus might well be made about the sacrifice that Jesus poured out of his own life. Anyone looking from the outside might look at this exchange and say, what a waste. The infinitely valuable life of Jesus was exchanged for Joel, was exchanged for Marcus, was exchanged for Elizabeth. Was exchanged for this band of poor and pitiable wretches. And yet, somehow, Jesus does not consider it a waste. Consider that for a moment. What does that say about the way that Jesus values his people? And I think that as the Spirit of God teaches us the value of Christ's service for us, it also helps to reorient the way that we value our service back to Him. The way that the disciples valued the service of Mary, was that a true evaluation? What about the way that you value the service of others? What about the way that you value your own service? Let me put it this way. No sincere disciple of Jesus ever comes to the end of their life and says, you know, I just did too much for Jesus. I was too extravagant in my service to the Lord. I was too generous in my giving. Really, I was too dedicated. No. We see that if we give all of ourselves and all of our lives and all of our gifts, it's only what is beautiful and fitting for our Savior who gave all of Himself for us. And the wonderful thing is that all of these acts of love in service to Christ are not too extravagant, they are not wasted, and marvelously, they are not forgotten. Jesus does not forget you. He does not forget the sincere acts of love and devotion that you bring to Him. Whether that's serving meals or hosting people in your home or scrubbing toilets. Jesus is pleased to promote the glory of those who promote the glory of their Savior. He is pleased to smile upon our simple gifts offered in faith and love and to reward that which is sincere. Not because they are blameworthy in themselves, but because they're offered in Christ. And so just as he did with Mary, he does with all his saints. The author of Hebrews will put it this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And so may we then learn to regard all of our gifts as Mary regarded hers. So that even if we poured out everything, our whole lives and every earthly treasure, We would only ever regard it as that which was proper for our King of kings and Lord of lords. And know that it will never be wasted and it will never be forgotten and it will resound to the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, we confess that we do not always value you as we ought. Indeed, every time we sin against you, we prove that we do not value you as we ought. And yet, Lord, we wonder at the way that you value us. We who have nothing in and of ourselves, and yet you have come and set your love upon us, poured out the entirety of your life for us, so that we might be delivered, reconciled, that we might have that promise of resurrection that even though we die, yet we shall live, because you died and you live. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit and through your word, you would help to change the way we value things in this world, even the way that we value our own service to you and the service of others to you. Lord, help us to do it wholeheartedly and sincerely, knowing that it is not wasted or forgotten, and help us always to consider the great glory of your sacrifice and pouring out of yourself for us. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen. And as you're seated, uh, you know I trust that you are reclining with Jesus at a table. But it's different. As Jesus reclined at that table, he said, You will not always have me with you. As Jesus reclines with us at this table, he says, You always have me with you. Because he went to the cross, because he died, because he was raised, right? Not only we, but his disciples would always have him with them. And this meal not only looks back to that day... It also looks forward to that day when we will be forever with the Lord. In Matthew's account, he says, I'll not drink this cup again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so this this meal is a celebration meal. It is a meal where we just revel in what our God has done for us. So many dead men and women, so many lepers, right? Spiritual and moral outcasts. And yet God has brought us into his family And he's given us a seat at this table. Now, not everyone has a seat at this table. Uh, This table belongs for those who belong to Jesus Christ. It belongs to those who are his disciples, right? Not to those who are conspiring against him or to those who are not trusting in him or resting in his grace. And if you know that you do not belong to Christ, you do not love him, you do not value him, then... Just very frankly, this meal is not for you. This meal belongs to those who love and follow after Christ. Not perfectly, even as the disciples did not. Yet truly and sincerely desire to follow after Him. And so if you belong to Christ, if you belong to His church, if you're a baptized, professing member of a church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, And you're walking in faith and in repentance, and we welcome you to come and to join with us at this table. But if those things are not true of you, uh, let me ask you to let these elements pass, but I would also call upon you not to let Christ Jesus himself pass today, because he says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is good news for sinners But as we come to this table then, let us come not only with rejoicing, but with faith and ask now that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come, we feel very much that we do not have a right to sit at this table, but we would gather up the crumbs that fall from it. And yet you do not treat us like dogs gathering up the crumbs. You you treat us like children. You call us to come and to... Uh, receive these things from your hand, these things which are your way of encouraging us in our faith, our hope, and our love, these signs and seals of your grace. And so, Lord, this day we pray that we would value these things rightly and that we would celebrate your grace to us. And so take these ordinary elements now of bread and wine and set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, we might receive Christ and all of his benefits to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.